Welcome back to the Reggie and Royal podcast. As we left episode 6, we delved into how the major global central banks dilemma sequel, particularly the Federal Reserve, which in concert with the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, had painted themselves into the proverbial corner over the past 20 years. Their habitual focus on using temporary stimulus to maintain the appearances of the so-called wealth effect, was assumed with all with good intentions. The same steps that began as a process to secure the financial markets from pending calamities, like treating a patient in an intensive care unit, have all matured, and, evolved into a, a different exercise. This is now the care and feeding of a patient that might never again leave the critical care unit and thrive on its own. The markets are now under perpetual care. The consequences of these changes only postpones, and, in some cases, will intensify the future outcomes and events. We must all prepare for this inevitable instability, and, all of its major distortions upon our financial lives. By the way, if you are enjoying the podcasts, don't forget to smash the like button, and, subscribe to our channel. This seventh episode is about selected highlights from the recent Bitcoin 2022 conference, which was held in April 6th through 9th in Miami. Such notable addressees were MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor, ARK CEO Kathy Wood, Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, Chairman of Wyo Hackathon Caitlin Long, and, Genesis Chief Operating Officer Noah Perlman. And, although a lot of recent focus this year has been on the so-called Bitcoin or crypto winter, we'll place a deep dive into that topic in a future podcast. At the present time, much of the overhang of potential legislation and likely regulations on cryptocurrency is yet to be settled. As this further develops, we'll have a more significant contribution to make in a way that offers greater guidance and, directions for your informed decision-making. Located in the heart of Miami Beach, the Miami Beach Convention Center is a world-class event space with capacity for over 100,000 people. Bitcoin 2022 would not be possible without their many partners in the Bitcoin community and their contributions to the event. Miami Beach Convention Center, MBCC, welcomed thousands of visitors and fintech industry leaders for the largest Bitcoin event in the history of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin 2022, from April 6 to 9, 2022. Bitcoin 2022 brought together company founders, C-suite executives, Bitcoin holders, and industry experts to fulfill their mission of mass Bitcoin adoption and hyper-Bitcoinization. The 2021 event, held at Mata Wynwood, was a resounding success, drawing over 12,000 people and generating an estimated $3.3 million in local economic impact. This led organizers to search for a larger venue that can accommodate what is expected to be an even larger attendance next year perhaps as many as 30,000 and including a huge international draw. The four-day Bitcoin 2022 conference included an industry day for speaker panels and conferences, as well as a sound money festival on the last day with live performances, entertainment, and other giveaways for attendees. Attendees were offered in-person access to thousands of global decision-makers, increase their brand's visibility, get important face time with clients and partners, and, celebrate one of the world's fastest-growing technologies. Billionaire Michael Saylor believes in Bitcoin more than ever. When it comes to publicly traded companies that own Bitcoin, one firm totally dominates. And it's not Tesla or Square or Coinbase. It's MicroStrategy, a publicly traded company based in Virginia that provides business, intelligence, mobile software and cloud computing. It owns about two and a half times as much Bitcoin as the next closest company. The reason MicroStrategy is so long on Bitcoin is because its 57-year-old billionaire CEO Michael Saylor had an epiphany during the summer of 2020 when COVID-19 shut down most of the country. Bitcoin is an approximation of a perfect monetary system because it is correct. It has no inflation and it is not corruptible because it's decentralized. 
As the economy tanked due to external factors, Saylor directed MicroStrategy to keep buying Bitcoin regardless of the price. And he's remained bullish despite the recent steep price slide, while also joking on Twitter that his next job just might be working at a McDonald's.Bitcoin, he believes, is the last, best hope of creating an economy that is independent of the machinations of politicians, central bankers and connected investors who rig the system to benefit themselves at the expense of regular people. Saylor sat down at the Bitcoin conference in Miami this April to talk about why he's all in on Bitcoin, how his training as an engineer informs his worldview, and, his belief that the one thing holding back the mass adoption of a non-state-backed currency is a lack of clarity in how the U.S. government will regulate it. Michael Saylor Let's start with a kind of general statement written in various places. Saylor says that Bitcoin is hope, which means that if you don't have property rights, then your life is hopeless. So anybody in the world without the ability to store economic energy in the form of property or in the form of proper money, can't plan for the future. He likens it to being a type 1 diabetic where you can't form fat. So if you can't actually store energy for the future, then by definition your life is hopeless, you can't plan anything and advance your living day by day, hand to mouth. And on the day that you fail to hunt or you fail to catch something, you go hungry. And after a few weeks of it, you starve to death. Is there hope? But there's a lot of hope before Bitcoin, right? Whatever else we might say about the dollar or fiat currency, people have been doing a pretty good job over the past 250 years here of living for the future and having hope. If you look at the history of the world, you can see a lot of desperation and desolation. The plight may be the Romans, the rich Romans did okay if they didn't kill each other, right? The Roman Empire had like a million Roman citizens and 190 million serfs and billions and billions of people have lived without hope for quite a while. He doesn't think the human condition had been great. He thinks that the best money that we had for 10,000 years was gold. But we know that gold is imperfect money and we can trace thousands and thousands of wars to it, and we can trace tens of thousands of stories of people that saved their money in gold to have it seized or lost. If you go back to before Bitcoin, parts of the world had assets that they could use to store economic value maybe the United States and Europe. But there are parts of the world like South America and Africa that not in thousands of years have actually had proper property rights or proper monetary assets. So their life has been hopeless. And, it continues. They continue to struggle. There are about 10 currency collapses, in Argentina over the course of 200 years. Or the Russian currency collapse in 1998. So, if we look at the history of modern currencies, the US dollar is the winner in every war in the 20th century has lost 99.7% of its value in 90 years, and is on track to lose 99.9% .9 of its value in 100 years. That's the best one. So every other currency other than the US dollar was worse than 99.9%. Let's explain what it means for the United States dollar to lose 99% of its value. Because there's no question that people living, for example, in 1915 or 1970, or whatever, had currency that was created to have more purchasing power in their lives versus now, even though people now are so-called, living better. What it actually means is that it takes 10, 20, 30 times more currency to do what less currency would do, in times past. And yet standards of living continue to increase. To keep up with it, currency must continue its upward spiral to maintain this constant increase in living standards. This is different from inflation, because... The decline in currency value affects everything as time continues, whereas, with inflation, the impacts are more clearly confined to targets of spending at different points in time, like housing, while you might actually get more for your money over time, through disinflation, with something like increasing the power of your electronic devices for a given $100 expenditure. That doesn't mean that all of the dollars you own have that capability, 
when your money is spent elsewhere. Now, let's see why Kathy Wood is bullish on cryptocurrency. The biggest misallocation in human history. This is the very well-respected investor Kathy Wood who is the founder, CEO, and CIO of ARK Invest, a well-known fund that focuses on investing in disruptive innovation. I believe this is the most massive misallocation of capital in the history of mankind. This is why Kathy Wood is sharing specifically which crypto she likes, which crypto sector she's bullish on, she sees the future in. To be fair, this is not Kathy Wood talking about cryptocurrency, or, any specific stock in general, although she does mention Tesla. But other than that, this is just Kathy Wood in general talking about investing in innovation, because, she says the biggest misallocation for human history is looking backwards, instead of investing forwards. Kathy says, I think, what if this, if I understand what we're referring to, I believe that this shift towards passive and benchmark sensitive investing means that you are mimicking indexes, which is kind of mindless, is very backwards looking. You know, the stocks at the top of these indexes are there because of what has happened historically. I believe this is the most massive misallocation of capital in the history of mankind, especially, because that's a punchline. This is one of the most massive misallocations of capital in the history of mankind. We have ahead of us the most magnificent opportunities, because of the massive amount of innovation that's taking place, and, yet, there's the fear that has pushed investors back to their benchmarks. And, not all investments have nearly a billion dollars in inflows since January 17th. And, that's in the flagship fund. That's some very interesting perspective from a very successful investor. At the University of Miami in the exact same month, Kathy Wood was speaking about the exact cryptocurrencies she likes, which sector she's bullish on in the cryptocurrency market, for example, DeFi, NFTs, whatever else she likes, and, her big ideas for 2022, from an actual report she released on her mindset on crypto in 2022. She continues, what we believe is happening are three different revolutions, one is a money revolution, one is a financial revolution, and, one is a next generation internet revolution. The last one would be what people are calling the metaverse. So the money revolution is what's mentioned where we think that very few currencies will be playing in that particular game. Bitcoin and Ether are the two. Bitcoin, more dominant from a money point of view, and, again, each one of these words is extremely important, it is the first, global, big important word, private, digital, rules-based, monetary system ever. So, we see El Salvador adopting it. We see black markets in Turkey, and, in many other countries, because these people know what can happen with fiscal and monetary policies gone awry, or, with corrupt regimes. So, that's Bitcoin, and, in Ether, the financial revolution is DeFi, or, decentralized finance, and, really just taking all the middlemen out of the financial ecosystem. That's a real threat to all of us. We're trying to gauge. We know that the combination of digital wallets, and, DeFi is going to hollow out a lot of financial institutions. It may already be because a lot of lending and saving is taking place on DeFi, because it offers lower loan rates, and, higher saving rates, so that's compelling. That's a compelling combination. So we think DeFi is scaling enormously right now, and we think that we've had a very good test. In May of last year, we had Bitcoin cut in half, Ether cut by more than half. I was waiting for the leverage of the DeFi system to topple it, and it didn't. Whatever doesn't kill these networks is making them stronger, anti-fragile is a word often used, and, then the third bucket here is the next generation internet revolution. And, this is where effectively longer term we will take power away from the data aggregators, who've enjoyed thus far on first generation internet the spoils, so that would be Google, and, Amazon, and, 
Facebook, as the consumer takes control of his inner data, and, especially in the healthcare arena, we think there's going to be really interesting and creative solutions coming out of the, the convergence of blockchain technology, and, artificial intelligence. And, the explosion in healthcare data that we are seeing, now that we can sequence each genome for a few hundred dollars. So those are the three ways. And, of course, NFTs belong in that world, the creator economy will be turbocharged, creators being rewarded for their creations, and, some fascinating directions in the art and the music world. To see how art pixels are being sold, and then, pictures reconstituted. But, the original artist getting a royalty for all of it even as the creation is resold to subsequent purchasers, or, owners. So it's pretty interesting. Kathy Wood is a heavily respected and successful investor in the traditional space, and, it's just enlightening to hear this mindset. Let's jump in on what does Kathy Wood holds in this $17.2 billion portfolio of 531 stocks, a lot in manufacturing, the majority in information, and, then, healthcare, and, social assistance science, and, tech, finance, arts. Now, let's just look at the top holdings, 9.21% is Tesla. Then, Zoom Video at 8.9%, Roku at 7.9%, Teladoc Health at 5.4%. Then, number 5 is CRISPR Therapeutics AG at 5.23%, Exact Sciences at 4.84%, Block Incorporated, at 4.75%, then, Intellia Therapeutics at 4.67%, and, UiPath at 4.34%, rounding out the top 10. This is not our crypto portfolio. Interest in digital assets has spread beyond retail traders, as institutional investors are increasingly curious about the space. In fact, approximately 1.46 million Bitcoin, 7.7% of the circulating supply, and 6.9% of the fully diluted supply, is held by institutions. Those values are up from just 3.3% and 3% in the past year. That includes public companies like MicroStrategy, governments like El Salvador and asset managers like Grayscale Investments, the creator of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Wood takes the trend further, forecasting that companies will continue to diversify into Bitcoin, and other cryptos, eventually allocating 5% of their total funds toward digital assets. Wood believes the trend will push the price of Bitcoin to $500,000 by 2026, implying over 2,000% upside from today's price of $23,800 per coin. That's why this cryptocurrency looks like a smart long-term investment. Let's now I listen to Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, discloses his crypto thoughts and holdings. Kevin O'Leary needs little introduction. You probably know him as Mr. Wonderful. Maybe you've seen him on Shark Tank. He's a Canadian, businessman entrepreneur. Kevin has spoken on Bitcoin mining, and, potentially its role in creating a greener future. A lot of people might not understand that, because of all the fear, uncertainty and doubts surrounding Bitcoin mining. I'll explain the role of Bitcoin mining, and, in creating green technology, or, actually, paving the way for more green technology. Let's start with fund flows, because, what Bitcoin mining is a capex, as in, capital expenditure, it's an infrastructure play, it's a data center play, so when the first companies started to build up hash rates, here in the United States, they basically linked into the existing electricity lines not knowing what the source of that power was. It might have been flared gas. It might have been coal. It could have been whatever it was. It's blended now. That was fine two years ago, and, why it mattered was that many large institutions like sovereign pension plans, are not allowed to own Bitcoin. But they want exposure to the assets, so what they did, and, I know this, 
because I'm in the indexing business. So, let's say you're a sovereign wealth fund in a Middle Eastern country, and most of your wealth came from oil. But, you don't want to invest more in oil. You already have that. So, you go to an indexer, and, you say, okay, index me the S&P 500, minus oil, minus airlines, we don't want to own those, and, so indexers like me do that. So we're exposed to fund flows by the trillions, you know, 24-7. We're servicing these giant entities, and, they are in a majority of wealth US pension plans, or, sovereign funds. This is where most of the money is, in investors. So, the reason I'm walking you through this cycle, so you'll understand that this massive switch that's going on in Bitcoin mining. So we indexed all these companies, companies like Marathon Hive, HUD8, Riot, and, a few others. And, that's how these large solvent plans own Bitcoin, because, the price of these public stocks goes up and down, as a proxy against Bitcoin pricing, so, if you know Bitcoin pricing gets cut in half, they get cut in half if it doubles. They double so it was a great way to own Bitcoin until the environmental, governmental, and, social, or ESG, mandate came out. It started with BlackRock. Then, you saw it in the presidential executive order. Then, the Securities Exchange Commission, just announced, in a memo, that they're contemplating carbon audits on public companies. It doesn't matter what if you're a Bitcoin maester, any company that's in the S&P 500. And, here's the problem. Everybody knows, and, all of the Bitcoin miners were using carbon offset, so they would say we're carbon neutral. Because, he bought all these offsets. The offset market is such a wide range of, call it, target error, that it's impossible to audit. And here's the problem, the Securities Exchange Commission order is contemplating getting your audit firm to sign off on your carbon neutrality, in the same way they're signing off on your financials. You can't get an auditor to sign that right now. They're never going to do it, because, everybody knows that tracking error is so wide on carbon offsets, in another term carbon offsets are. That's the only way to put it. So all of a sudden, we have to sell all those shares, because, we know they're going to get into a lot of trouble when they try to prove their neutrality. So, the new mining is emerging, being funded primarily by sovereign wealth. And, here's how it works. You find a country like Norway, or, you find a province like Quebec, or, upstate New York, or, Montana, or, North Dakota, where there's excess hydroelectricity. You build a facility right by the turbines. It's a brand new build. And, you get an agreement with the miner. I think this is happening right now in northern Norway, with a company called BitZero. It's a private company. I'm an investor in it. So, its largest investors are out of the United Arab Emirates. Every coin that they're rewarded is staying on the balance sheet, so that becomes our proxy to Bitcoin. Now, we own our coin. Now, we've mined it ethically. Now, we've mined it all green, we do not have to be audited for carbon. Because, there's no carbon. It's 100% hydro, and, so, in doing so, we are not only capturing unused hydroelectricity. We've got the latest state mining equipment, which just uses 40% less energy. We're taking the heat from the stacks, and, creating a hydroponic facility that grows tomatoes, and, a canning plant beside it, because, in northern Norway, there's not that much sun for tomatoes. We're integrated into the community. We are creating a new power source for all the citizens in that 3,000-person village, that is, the new mining. So the best way to look at this, is we should applaud the early miners that built up capacity here in the United States, but, they are essentially the pioneers with the arrows in their back, because, the capital is going to move away from them, and, it's going to go to the new generation of miner, 
which is the Norway model as I call it. We're building these in almost every state here in America that is hydro. We're very fortunate because we have access to the latest technology. A lot of people don't realize this, but, it's the sovereign wealth plans in the Middle East that were racing early on, 25 years ago, to buy capacity and chip manufacturing in many, global foundries. And, many of the other Taiwan semiconductors etc., have access to those mining chips that we need. We're going to build these new miners all over the world. Brazil has hydro. Georgia has hydro all of these. Quebec has hydro. That's the new model, and, I'm not against what's happening with the existing public companies, and, I'm getting it that a lot of people aren't happy for me telling the truth. But, it is the truth. They're screwed. They're going to face carbon audits. What can you do? Everybody knows that it's gonna be very, very, very hard for them to pass that, and, whatever happens, their stocks are going to be one alternative for an institution to buy. Or, of all these other companies go public in the next 18 months, it's obvious which ones they're going to pick. They're going to go with the green miners, the real green miners, that don't have to deal with carbon offsets. The bottom line is, and, I think policy's showing it, and, the SEC is driving it. An executive order from the president has it, carbon offsets are, absolutely, the story. That's interesting. You talked about, for me, crypto proxy stocks as a way for these legacy financial institutions to actually participate in the market. What's the limiting factor for outright ownership of Bitcoin? Is it still the regulatory side? Is it uncertainty on which way it's going to go from a policy perspective? What's preventing so many legacy finance institutions from actually investing outright in crypto? Are they waiting for a spot ETF, for example? Well, you're 100% right. It's completely regulatory. So here's how a sovereign, such as a pension fund, would work. This is pretty much the mandate state side, and, globally, let's say you're running a $100 billion mandate. You have certain parameters you're allowed to work with, and, with indexers like me. We work with these people every day generally speaking, there are 11 sectors in the S&P. You're allowed to hold up to 20 in any one sector, and, up to 5 of any one stock. So those are sort of the diversification mandates, and, it's been that way for some derivative of that for forever. So you get diversification, within the broad, $100 billion mandate you have on top of you, as the money manager, a compliance department. They mark to market your positions, by the second, so, they know exactly what you hold, whether you've breached the mandate, whether you're in an area that you're not allowed to invest in, or, whatever how much leverage you have on, if you have leverage, all of these things are in this infrastructure build-out that's been around for decades, on top of the compliance department, is now an environmental, social, governmental, ESG, compliant department, and, an ethics department. So, the reason none of these funds, even though people are so excited about Bitcoin, and, say, oh this is amazing, and, we were just sitting at 40 plus thousand dollars in April, the truth is the majority of the world's managed money, trillions and trillions of dollars has this much Bitcoin, zero. And, they're never going to put it on their balance sheets, until they get the regulatory environment to give them the rules. Then, we get the compliance department to say okay, then, the ESG committee to say okay, and, the ethics committee to say okay. So, they don't want coin that's mined in China for example, because, it burned coal. That's the ESG guys coming in, and, weighing in. So, this is forcing a change. It's not changing the nature of a coin that's awarded. But, people want to know the providence of the coin which is why these new age miners, the Norway project, the BitZeros, all of these other companies that are going with 100% green hydro, 
they're very coveted. Their shares are going to be very coveted, as they come onto the public market, because now these sovereign plans can buy the shares of these companies. They pass ESG mandates. They pass compliance mandates on ethics, and, they are an equity, so, they're going to be able to be held within one of the broader mandates. So, there's a tremendous amount of capital funding these new miners. And, that will be the proxy for exposure, until the second and the other regulators in the US which pretty well most regulators around the world abide by that ETF you talked about actually was an issue. An order from the OSC in Canada, which is one of the most advanced, they were the first to bring an ETF that had the underlying being Bitcoin, but they also brought an ETF that had the underlying Ethereum. And, the policy up in Canada is they also issued the very first crypto exchange with a broker-dealer attached. They're very advanced, but, my thesis this is, as a personal opinion, is that the SEC has a very close relationship with the OSCE in Canada. Their policies are almost identical. They're probably using Ontario and Canada as a guinea pig, to try to get these policies right, and, if they work, they'll use some of these, maybe, in the United States, which we hope. But, I'm very bullish that policy is coming, because, you've seen bills coming. You've got the same from Senator Haggerty. You know he was on CNBC talking about stable coins. The Haggerty bill is a two-page bill. That contemplates stable coin. So there's a lot of momentum on the regulatory side that I'm very excited about. Well, as a resident of Ontario, I can tell you the sky is not falling, because we have a Bitcoin ETF. So, there's really not much to be afraid of everyone, right? So, we talked about Bitcoin and the Bitcoin mining. Are there any other sectors within crypto that I'm really excited about? Is it the DeFi space? Any other investments that we're really looking into? Maybe a thematic investment potential that we look at within crypto? So, yes, I'm very, very interested in. As an investment thesis, this is not only in Canada, but, globally. Show me the jurisdictions that are issuing crypto exchange licenses, because, that's the infrastructure of crypto forever. And, so the UAE, United Arab Emirates, particularly, Abu Dhabi, Brazil, Argentina, Switzerland, and the UK. I'm using a vehicle called WanderFi, a company that's a Canadian company, they own the largest crypto exchange in Canada, they bought bit by bit. They're looking at other opportunities all over the world. I assume that's what the management has said to the market, and, I'm very interested in investing in that, because, I'm hoping what they're going to do is a roll-up of exchanges globally, and, what better place than in Canada, because, Canada has been so accommodative on issuing the very first crypto license. The other area that really intrigues me, and, and what I like about WonderFi is they have both centralized wallets, and, decentralized. So, where they're allowed to provide a decentralized wallet, which that means when you acquire a customer, they can keep both wallets active. Maybe your NFTs are in a decentralized wallet, and, you're keeping your coin in a centralized wallet for security reasons, but, the point is they have both. I love infrastructure, so I also have a position in BitZero, which is you know, also private, but, building the Norway model. That's infrastructure, data centers, and, Bitcoin mining. There they're looking at many opportunities around Hydra state side, and, then of course, there's immutable holdings. They're the infrastructure for NFTs. They are their own NFT.com. I'm a shareholder. Jordan Fried is the CEO. These are all infrastructure plays. That's that company again that went public in Canada, holds the stock. So, there you have it. I mean there's lots of opportunity, and, within our operating company's portfolio now in crypto, that's the most I can hold. Someone wants to know how we reached in at 20.
I have reached the 20 threshold last year. I was in at 7, so now I'm at 20, and, now we have 32 positions on. It's the most exciting part of my portfolio, the most volatile, I mean. It's all over the map every day. Here to disclose what kind of assets we're holding, I will disclose some of them. You know part of this came through my relationship with FTX, I'm a shareholder in FTX as well as a paid spokesperson. To have to disclose that, I love what Sam is building there. You know, and, I use my FTX wallet, obviously. But, I also own HBAR. I own Polygon. I just put a position on in Polygon after, meeting Sandeep. I love his vision of reducing gas fees, particularly for people that can't afford to to spend that much on ETH, but, he's aggregating transactions, and, passing it through in one, saving a ton of money. I love that idea. Just got into Helium also. Avalanche, Solana. I'm a big believer in that. I've got 32 aggregate positions. Those are some of the larger positions, and, so, I don't know which one's going to win. Nobody knows, but, certainly, you know Ethereum's too slow for me, as a financial services guy, so I'm looking, I'm hoping that Solana ends up being something much faster. It's got the backing of Sam Bankman-Fried, which is always a good thing. But, there's a lot of new ideas, and, I'll back any entrepreneur that has something of value. I'm not so much onto the, for lack of a better word, the, blank, coins. I want something to show economic potential, create value somewhere, but, it doesn't mean you can't have fun. If you want to trade some Dogecoin, Great Dojo on Mars, and, stuff like that, that's all fine. It's like going to Las Vegas. Yeah, some healthy speculation isn't too bad right? I'm also very very interested in seeing policy come through on stable coins, because, in many of my operating companies, we have large cash positions. We're making 22 basis points. If I can lend out a contract for 30 days at 4%, on USDC, or, whatever, there's many ways to go on stable coins. But, we really need policy there, because, my auditors, and, my compliance departments, will not let me put on a significant position on unstable elements. You've got to think that market is really right for growth, given the yields that you can earn just by holding stables. The deals have come down over the last three months, because, we're past 100 billion. But, it's still better, and, I think why it should be standardized as policy, is that it allows the US dollar to remain the default currency globally, and, you want that. And, I'd like to do a lot of the work I do in Europe on USDC, and, just not have to go through FX transactions all the time. But, we need regulators to approve that. But, we're innocent days. We're in the early days. But, I'm extremely optimistic. It was great to listen to Kevin O'Leary. Bitcoin is not designed to be leveraged. Exclusive interview with Caitlin Long. An interviewer in Miami for Bitcoin 2022 spoke with Caitlin Long. The path to integrating Bitcoin and other digital assets into the Federal Reserve payment system is through Wyoming, not through Washington, D.C. Bitcoin is not an asset that is designed to be leveraged, unlike fiat currencies. The punchline is that if you pay your taxes and you get regulated and you don't take shortcuts, you're gonna be okay. Caitlin was on Wyoming Blockchain Task Force, as gubernatorial appointee from 2018 to 2019. She's chairman of Wyoming Hackathon, since 2018, former chairman and president of Symbiont from 2016 to 2018, which was named to Forbes Fintech 50 in 2018, she was Markets Media Women in Finance Award for Excellence in Blockchain, in 2016, she was on Inc. Magazine's list of 10 business leaders changing the world through tech in 2016.
she was on the institutional investor list of most influential people in pensions, Pension 40, in 2013, 2014, and 2015. She was a Bitcoin evangelist since 2012, served on Morgan Stanley's internal blockchain working group, 2014 to 2016. She has 22 years of corporate finance experience, from 1994 to 2016 with Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Salomon Brothers, and, was a managing director from 2001 to 201. She started and ran three successful businesses in pensions and insurance. She was a top-rated equity research analyst. Let's gather some thoughts from her, and then, let's listen a little bit about where we might see regulations in the future. We've obviously had a correction in the few months or so. It's a bull market correction. The bull market trend has not, has not, been broken. And it's flushing out some excesses. Clearly in the industry, a lot of leverage had leaked into the industry, and, that was never healthy. Bitcoin is not an asset that is designed to be leveraged, unlike fiat currencies, which are themselves leveraged, and, leverage goes piled on top of leverage. So it's tough for those of us who really understand the Bitcoin ethos, and, recognize that solvency matters more than leverage, and, liquidity. It's right to watch these kinds of situations, because, you know, innocent people are being hurt. And, you know I would just suggest that if somebody has had that experience, you know, once you get into Bitcoin, and, you start losing money, I consider, that in my personal experience, I consider that to be really valuable tuition for really learning what Bitcoin is. And, we've got a lot of new people in this industry now, who are going through those lessons. And, hopefully folks will learn from them. There's just especially in this bull market, there's been so much leverage added to the system, and, for those of us who've been around a long time, we learned that lesson a long time ago. You don't leverage Bitcoin. I have advice for newbies coming in, that I see, they saw the price of Bitcoin at over 60k, and, now they see it today. I mean obviously, it's hot and all, and, I'm sure many of us have been in it for a while. But, the advice for newbies who just got in, well, I sat with my with losses on my Bitcoin, in the $2000 range, after the 2013 bull market. I sat with losses on my Bitcoin for a long time, and, again, that's when you learn the really valuable lessons. So just stick with it. This is an asset that's also a number. Technology goes up over time. This is an asset that is very likely to hold its value. And, I personally don't trade it just like some do, so I know a lot of people do. But, the one thing that I certainly would caution against, and, hopefully folks have learned their lesson is, just don't leverage it. Just good advice. Now, let's talk a little bit about regulations that we may see coming up with Bitcoin. It's pretty clear, as I've been tweeting, and, some have been writing about, that there is regulation coming out of Washington DC. It also does appear to be that it was coordinated, among some other governments, that's kind of all announced at the same time. It's a bit of a regulatory push. This is not a surprise. I think it was Ray Dalio who said that Bitcoin's biggest threat is success, because that means the regulators are going to be cracking down, and it's interesting. Governor Lael Brainerd of the Fed, at the consensus conference in June, made reference to when she was talking about stable coins, made reference to the free banking era, or, sometimes it's called the wildcat banking era, and, she laid out that that was, the, the impetus for a lot of the regulation, that exists in the traditional financial services industry today. And, there's a lot of disagreement among historians and economists over whether that era was good or bad, but she's right that we're repeating some of those same issues. We are seeing a lot of excess. We are seeing 100 to 1 leverage in exchanges. We are seeing exchanges that no one knows if they're solvent, and there's zero disclosure about the counterparty risk associated with them. 
All of these lessons were learned in the US dollar system, and, it's why we have the regulations we do, in the US dollar system. So, she's right to have made that analogy, but, you also know that it's important to realize when a central banker refers to that, what she means is, that was a toxic era in monetary history. That's how she would view it. And, that is just a warning shot to our industry, that some regulations are coming. I think the regulation that's coming clearly is not going to ban it. The punchline, is that if you pay your taxes, and you get regulated, and you don't take shortcuts, you're going to be okay. Those that are trying to commit crimes, or, defraud consumers, or, not pay taxes, or, not comply with the law, those are not going to be okay. So, I'm basically anticipating your next question, which is, can crypto coexist with the regulatory environment today? It sounds like the answer is yes, as long as you play along by the rules. It's pretty clear that the regulators understand that crypto is not going to be bannable. And so, at this point, it's just a question of how do the regulators make sure that the volatility of crypto does not infect the traditional financial services industry. And, that's where they've been spending a lot of time ensuring that there's not a run risk. We've got, for example, stable coins, with now tens of billions of dollars, that could, in theory, if something went wrong on one of the chains, the stable coins could be withdrawn in the span of minutes. So the question is, would the traditional banks or custodians, that are holding those US dollar assets, be able to handle a sudden withdrawal, within the span of minutes? Those are the kinds of things that the traditional regulators are looking at, in terms of dealing with the risks that are, or, that could be coming into the traditional financial system from crypto, because crypto moves very fast. Bitcoin is not bannable. I like that in this discussion of stable points, we've said something about a crackdown on stable coins. Let's discuss a little bit about what we mean by that. Well, as they say, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reporting what I'm seeing, which is when you get the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and, the Federal Reserve governor who sits over payment systems, both talking about stable coins within the span of a few days of each other, it tells you something's up. And, it tells you that stable coins are on the agenda of the people at the very top of the regulatory pyramid in Washington DC so, what comes of that we don't know, but, again they're very focused on making sure that stable coins don't infect the U.S. dollar payment system, with run risk, with liquidity risk, and, rightfully so. Because, like I've mentioned, there are scenarios, for example, the accidental force that happened for a few hours in Ethereum, in November of last year. I was watching that at the time, and, just thinking, what would happen if all of the Ethereum, ERC-20, stable coins had to be redeemed, within the span of minutes, because they had to be burned on one fork, and reissued on the same night. That is not a risk that the traditional financial system has been thinking about. And, back then, in November, we were at about 15 billion of stable coins outstanding, and, now we're approaching 90 billion. It's crazy, and it's starting to become material. So, it should not surprise anyone that traditional financial services regulators are thinking about these very issues, as in, what will happen? It's a very interesting question. Governor Brainerd, Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve, has spoken very consistently over the last several of years, and she's spoken at a lot of crypto conferences. I've been on a couple of panels with her over the last few years, so she's very familiar with this industry. She's doing the homework on this industry, and she's spoken several times about getting it inside the banking system that, historically, has not been an option, because the banks in the United States have not been able to. You can. There hasn't been an ability to get bank charters for crypto-native companies. But, that door is opening now, I believe. So, it's interesting that we say that that door is opening. Now, I'll talk a little bit about that. 
maybe some other innovation that we can expect to see from, I mean, Wyoming, is obviously innovating, like leading the way. Let's talk a little bit just about the innovation and what we can expect to see. Well, obviously, the Wyoming SPDI, the Special Purpose Depository Institutions, or, Speedy Banks, are coming. As well, not open yet, but, towards the end of the regulatory approval process. So, stay tuned. There are more Speedy Banks coming. That is, I had always said that the path to integrating Bitcoin, and other digital assets into the Federal Reserve payment system is through Wyoming, not through Washington DC, and, it does indeed appear that this is coming true. Stay tuned. It's not there yet though, and, that is why a number of companies are circling Wyoming, and, once this store opens, I think there will be others that walk through it, in terms of other interesting innovations coming out of Wyoming. The most, or, the one that's seen the most interest recently is the Dow Bill. Wyoming recognizes DAOs, or, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, as a specialized type of limited liability company, and it's not truly decentralized. The purists are right, because in order to get the limited liability protection of registering a DAO in Wyoming, there has to be a person involved with it. Which means it's not truly decentralized. But, the benefit of doing so is that you can actually have your governance be in the form of code, as opposed to in an operating agreement written down on paper in words, and, you can also have nodes become members, so this is definitely a step forward for experimentation with code-based governance, and, code-based systems. And, it also gives the benefit of limited liability, which you get for registering a corporation, or, an LLC. So, it's a big step forward, in sort of post-industrial revolution forms of human organization, and forms of business organization. That has seen an enormous amount of interest, and the Wyoming Blockchain Select Committee is working on some refinements to the law, that was already enacted in the last legislative session. We knew there were some challenges with it. And, so the proposed fix is already out. So everyone who's looking to set one up, since it took effect July 1st, knows what he likely fixes in the statute are going to be. So, they should have planned accordingly. As far as goals that we're targeting in Wyoming, I'm a big believer in Bitcoin as a fundamentally empowering technology, to individuals. At the conference, Michael Saylor made reference to the fact that we now have a technology that can give property rights to 8 billion people in the world. And it is all about property rights, so, ultimately what we're trying to do, is build up that ecosystem. It is all about devolving power away from centralized structures, and, into decentralized structures, that is not something that will happen overnight. So, building bridges between the two is critical which is in in the next decade or so. What I'm working on, with Avanti, I'm working towards most long-time Bitcoiners, something much bigger, that outlasts all of us, which is the fundamental acceptance of this technology, as ultimately empowering the individual, and, we're going to get there. It's just a question of how. What is driving crypto mass adoption in 2022? Interview with the Chief Operating Officer at Gemini. Next from Bitcoin 2022 in Miami is Noah Perlman the Chief Operating Officer at Gemini, where he has responsibility for compliance, people, product, marketing, communications, sales, and support. Previously he was a Managing Director, and, the Global Head of Financial Crimes at Morgan Stanley, where he had legal and compliance responsibility for the firm's anti-money laundering, sanctions, anti-boycott, anti-corruption, and, government and political activities programs. Mr. Perlman joined Morgan Stanley in 2006, after two years serving as the Division Counsel for the United States Drug Enforcement Administration's New York Division. Prior to Mr. Perlman's affiliation with DEA, 
He was an assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of New York, where he held several supervisory posts, including special coordinator for crimes against children, and, deputy chief of the narcotics section. So, let's start from the beginning, how did I got into blockchain, how I first heard about it, and, do I remember the price of Bitcoin? At the time, I think I can answer all of those questions. So, I actually have a somewhat usual trajectory to crypto, in that I began with interest in finance, and actually worked at a traditional, finance shop for almost 14 years. One of the duties I had at the bank that I worked at, was evaluating all the crypto and blockchain opportunities that came to the bank, evaluating them, both for credit worthiness, reputational risk, regulatory concerns, and, through that, I became interested, and like the cliché, down the rabbit hole, into crypto. When the opportunity came, one Gemini was looking for a chief compliance officer, I was contacted, was interested in applying, and the rest is history as they say. Here's how I see the role of Gemini in the growth of blockchain, and mass adoption. So look, we have a very specific role to play in the ecosystem. And, if I can talk a little bit about the state of crypto, through a report that we just issued. We have Gemini issue, every year, a state of the crypto report, these are surveys of almost 30,000 adults, in 20 different countries. I know we'll get into some of those results, but, one of the things that is very clear from that survey, is that people want a regulated compliance solution, and that's the role that Gemini plays. Since our founding, we have been about security, about compliance, about regulation. The motto of our founders, Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss is, we ask for permission, not forgiveness. So wherever we operate in the world, we do it with collaboration, with the regulators, and, there's definitely a demand, and, a need for that. And, that's part of the role that we play. I know in this report, it was found that the ownership of crypto has doubled, especially in Latin America, and, Asian countries. So, what do we think is the biggest driver? We did that exactly right in 2021. It was a breakout year for crypto, almost 50% of people bought their first crypto in 2021. And, I think there are a number of things contributing to that sort of wider adoption. One is something that we just talked about is regulation and security. It's that crypto is no longer the wild wild west. The longer it persists, the more people feel comfortable that it's safe, and secure. Then, the other thing, as a more unfortunate driver of adoption, is simply the sort of dislocation you're seeing in the world, so, we found in the report, that inflation was a big driver, and, in fact, we found that in countries where the currency has been significantly devalued over the last 10 years, people there are five times more likely to say they want to buy crypto, out of a desperation, or, just a need for alternative payments, and, transactions. It's the need. That should hit it right on the head, the need. So, in developing countries, the results would suggest that crypto is a nice to have. Maybe this rounds out the portfolio. But, in countries that are developing, or, where there is severe sort of currency volatility dislocation, it becomes a must-have, and that's what the numbers are showing us. Next, I have to think about some of the barriers to adoption. So, a couple of barriers, despite what I said earlier about regulatory clarity, that's still a big barrier to adoption. People around the world, not just in the US, are asking, is this legal? What is this crypto thing all about? Having some regulatory clarity there, the other big one is education. And, people still need to be more educated about what crypto is, and, interestingly enough, one of the findings that came out of the report, that in this, probably of all the ones that surprised me, probably the most is that we found that people were more likely to buy crypto, if they had more education about crypto, or, 
did their own research, then from a recommendation from a friend. And the reason that surprised me, is that in traditional finance, you like to think that the friend network, or, some financial advisor I work with, gave a recommendation, that drives adoption. Here, it's really being educated. It's one of the reasons why we invest a lot in education. We've got a property cryptopedia, which is a great beginner, sort of a starting point for people. This is why we're really committed to it. And then, what other initiatives do we have in order to establish more education? Cryptopedia is the big one. The other thing that we do, is through some of our properties. We've got a frontier for an investment fund. And, something that we're not quite ready to launch publicly. But, I can talk about it. One of the main things is that it's going to be doing is investing in core developers, and investing in resources to help educate more people about it. And, what about on the institution side? What is their incentive to adopt crypto, and to work with Gemini? Well, institutions are coming in, because, for a number of reasons, one is that they see the opportunity, and, we've seen in recent weeks, we've seen Goldman Sachs do a trade show. We've seen other institutions come in, and, despite the fact that just a few years ago, we all know the quotes about what they were talking about, crypto, and not even allowing for the anecdotes, that at some banks, you couldn't even put crypto in a memo. But now, they're coming in, and, one of the reasons they've gotten comfortable as players such as Gemini, and, there are others too, who understand regulation, who play by the rules, who understand reputational risk, who understand KYC, an institution is not going to partner in this space, without somebody who plays by the same rules. It's just too much risk for them. So, that's a big driver. What about stable coins? Do we think about what the policy issues are? When it comes to adopting stable coins, they're interesting. And, I'm sure most of your listeners know what they are. But for those who don't, stable coins are simply cryptocurrencies slash crypto coins that are pegged, one-to-one -to, -one to a particular currency so there's no underlying volatility. For example, Gemini has 1 GUSD, the Gemini dollar. It's literally pegged one-to-one. -one. It doesn't change from a dollar. There's been some controversy about stable coins, because there are some that are issued where it's unclear that there's actually a real dollar backing it, and, I won't name names, but there have been audits, and concerns that are the funds really there, or not. Gemini dollar, by contrast, and, again there are others, that do this as well, where every single dollar is backed by a real dollar that's audited by the DFS, and, so, we don't have those concerns there. But, I think the general concern is for those, or, one of the big concerns, is that where there isn't a real dollar you know there is some real risk to the financial system, because, you've got billions of dollars sloshing around, and, it should be backed in the right way. And, since we are at Bitcoin Miami, I wanted to tell you where we see the Bitcoin ecosystem, going and growing in the next few years. At the outset, what was the price of Bitcoin? When I first thought about it, it was about 4,000, give or take, so, we're not even with the sort of recent pullback in the last couple months, still over 5 times where it was when I started. And, I know for a lot of people that 4000 number is probably 10 to 20 times what it was where they found it. But, that's where I was when I really started following. It's so look, I still think Bitcoin, I know we're at the conference, and, obviously, we've got thousands, actually, tens of thousands of people here, who are talking about, studying it, and, are deeply involved. It's here to stay. I'm excited about lots of different projects, but, Bitcoin remains the project that is sort of the OG as it were, and I think that again, for people who are less close to the space, you know a lot of the criticisms, about its effectiveness as of currency, you know speed energy, I think these are, while legitimate questions, 
I think they're all being solved as the ecosystem evolves, and, one thing I mean Bitcoin, you know for those of us who are following it, for, I think a lot of us would agree, it's really a store of value. It's digital gold 2.0, easier to transport, more finite, a great inflation hedge, so, big things ahead. Do we think it has a possibility of becoming like a standard for global financial transactions? I do. Now where to come from on that point? It may be more conservative than others, in that I don't know that that's an inevitability. But, I don't think it's impossible either. And, I think there is a likelihood that you might see increasing adoption, and start really seeing it as the standard. So, thanks very much for this opportunity to present my views to the podcast listeners. In our next podcast, Carbon Credits and Crypto, Episode 8, we'll look at the rapid and strategic developments in the emerging cryptocurrency niche of mandatory carbon offsets, applied to the blockchain. Mark Cuban has been an early investor in this space, and, has committed to regular purchases of carbon credits in the open market. This has been said to be one of the most significant growth opportunities over the next decade. One seasoned investor puts the segment as being, right now, where Bitcoin was a decade ago, with regard to the outstanding and lucrative growth opportunities ahead of us. So be sure to catch us next time, for Reggie and Royal Perspectives podcast on the economy, cryptocurrency, history, and business. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to smash the like button, and, subscribe to our channel. Until next time, let's, stay, busy.